welcome to the Preacher Girl Podcast. I'm Diane Wright, and today's talk, The Quandary of the Quagga, was first delivered at Hopedale Universalist Unitarian Congregation in Oxford, Ohio, on August 11, 2013. The reading today is from Marie Howe's book of poetry called The Kingdom of Ordinary Time. And this is called What We Would Give Up. One morning in Orlando, Florida, I asked a group of college students, what would we be willing to give up to equalize the wealth in the world? Malls, a red-haired young woman said right away. Supermarkets, the young man in a black t-shirt said, where you go to buy bread and there's 150 loaves on the shelf. Imported fruit, the young woman sitting next to him said. Berries in winter. A car, the guy with the nose ring said. I don't have a car anyway. Travel? Jet fuel? Well, we'd all be together, someone said. TV, said the guy without a car. I don't watch TV anyway. What about coffee, I said, looking down at my double-tall half-calf soy latte. Okay, everyone said, but I wondered about that one. Ten pairs of shoes? Yes. Movies? Maybe. That week, my phone was out of order. When the company tried to connect my line to a split line that would allow me fast cable access to the Internet, everything went dead. When I called the phone company, I was put on hold and had to listen to a tinny version of Vivaldi's Four Seasons, pitched at what seemed a much faster-than-usual speed. This call may be monitored. I was told to punch my number in five times during that first phone call. And every time, I was transferred to a person who asked for my number again. Eight calls that first day. We'll send a technician out, the central office would say. The technician, when he arrived, would say, the problem is in the central office. When I called the central office, someone would say, we have to send a technician out. When I said, a technician has already been there, the central office person would say, all I can do is put in an order, ma'am. Vivaldi. After seven days, I began to suspect that at the center of the central office is a room empty of all furniture but a table. On that table, a ringing telephone. Somewhere way down a long corridor, one guy in a broken chair in front of an empty desk. Every once in a while, he cranes his neck towards the door and yells to no one in particular, Is anyone going to answer that? If you don't want music, the phone company says, please hold through the silence. When I came home from Orlando, the phone started working again. The Gap, someone said. Everybody said, I don't go to the Gap. Would I give up the telephone? Would I give up hot water? Would I give up makeup? Would I give up dyeing my hair? That was a hard one. If I stopped dyeing my hair, everyone would know that my golden hair is actually gray and my long American youth would be over. And then what? 
So, isn't it a great name, the quagga? The last captive specimen of an animal known as the quagga died in a zoo in Amsterdam on August 12, 1883, 130 years ago tomorrow. And that's what brought the quagga to my attention. Each time I have an opportunity to put together a talk, I begin with the date. And death of the last quagga bubbled up for me as I researched this week in history. It's kind of like the old CBS Sunday morning segment called Everybody Has a Story, where they threw a dart at a map of the United States and then went to that place and randomly picked someone out of the phone book and interviewed them to learn their story. It's all about stories. And this morning, our story begins with the quagga. And by beginning with the story of the quagga, I hope to take us down an even broader path where we consider issues like extinction and culpability and responsibility and our awareness of the interdependent web of life of which we are a part. The quagga is a subspecies of zebra. It's brown with stripes on its hindquarters. Sometimes it's also called a lion horse. When Dutch settlers began arriving in southern Africa, there were great numbers of quagga, but it turns out they were easily hunted, and then when the new settlers brought livestock on the scene, the quagga were competing for food. The last wild quagga were gone by 1878, and the last quagga in captivity, that quagga in the zoo in Amsterdam, died in 1883. But here's the thing. At the time, no one knew that was the end of them. It was only in retrospect, much later, that it became clear the quagga were gone. The poet Ellen Bass has a beautiful poem called, If You Knew. If you knew, what if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember, they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They had just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? What did the quagga look like to the people in the 1870s? What if the zookeeper in Amsterdam had known would it have changed anything about the death of that quagga in Amsterdam?
Some of you may have seen these rules. You can get the list of them on plaques for the wall. If you open it, close it. If you take it out, put it back. If you turn it on, switch it off. If you move it, put it back. If you get it dirty, clean it up. If you bring it, take it home. If you borrow it, bring it back. If you break it, get it fixed. And if you love it, treat it as your own. If you turn it on, switch it off. If you break it, get it fixed. So, if we make it extinct, what do we do? It turns out the quagga was the first extinct animal to have its DNA analyzed. And we are not able to clone the quagga, but Reinhold Rau, a scientist in South Africa, has made it his life's work to attempt to breed back the quagga by selecting specific zebra specimens and breeding back the characteristics of the quagga. And he is having startling results. Rao calls it the Quagga Project, and since 1986, he has worked to make his dream a reality. And I can't decide what I think about this. I mean, we've all seen Jurassic Park, right? Today's problems come from yesterday's solutions. Just as no one had the foresight or collected knowledge to realize that the quagga were disappearing, no one among us will anticipate all the possible impacts of breeding back the quagga. This past week on the Diane Rehm Show, some of you may have heard author Tony Judemper talking about the impact of a medication called diclofenac. Tony Juniper's book, What Has Nature Ever Done for Us?, looks at the economic impacts of damage to the environment. And on the Diane Rehm show, one example he gave was the impact of a medication called diclofenac in India. Diclofenac is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. It's been used as a painkiller for humans for a long time. But here's what no one expected. In India, when farmers began using it as a painkiller for livestock, they would often give animals doses of it before death, and then the vultures would come. The vultures in India have been one of the subcontinent's primary scavengers for longer than anyone knows. And in this Hindu country, where people don't eat meat, scavengers are needed to eat the dead animals. The problem is, Vultures don't have the right enzymes in their bodies to break down the diclofenac. It poisons them. So here's the cascade effect. Livestock are in pain, and the compassionate farmers give painkillers. Livestock die and are dragged to communal dumps, where historically vultures would descend by the hundreds to eat the carcasses. The vultures are poisoned and die, millions in just the course of a little over a decade. In their place, the wild dog population in India begins to explode. 
Diseases begin to be spread by the rotting carcasses and by attacks from feral dogs. Tens of thousands more people in India have contracted and died from rabies and the bites from the bites of feral dogs. And if that's not enough, the increase in wild dog populations has boosted the population of leopards who now make their way into the communities seeking wild dogs, and they encounter some children along the way as well. And it doesn't end there. The loss of vultures has had a social impact on the Indian Zoroastrian Parsi community. They traditionally use vultures to dispose of human corpses in what they call towers of silence. Now they are compelled to seek alternative methods of disposal. Diclofenac. Remember the song? Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Scientists in India didn't know about the change in the vulture population until they began getting information from people in rural communities. How else would they know? We live in such an interesting time. I know I, for one, am lulled into the sense that some scientist somewhere knows everything. That somehow a bird study somewhere near Calcutta would have caught on to the change. But the world isn't like that at all. Scientists know this. Einstein pointed out, as the circle of light grows, so too grows the perimeter of darkness. I suppose one message is the same message you hear all the time now in New York public transit. If you see something, say something. These themes are not new for us. We live in a time when the sharing of information is so broad and so immediate that we can know right now that the honeybee is in danger, that the polar bear is in danger, that indigenous plant species are threatened by the exotic species brought in as decoration. Some of you may already know about the American Acclimatization Society. In the late 19th century, this group decided to bring to America from Europe every species of bird mentioned in the plays of William Shakespeare. For example, they released about a hundred starlings into Central Park in 1890. And now, starlings are everywhere, all in the name of Shakespeare. What to do? What to do? What would we give up to change the fate of the world? There are no simple answers to this. For me, the way I avoid hopelessness is by trying to cultivate mindfulness. I hold on to my faith that if I take a breath and pay better attention, I might at least do less harm. We all carry the legacy and the ancestry of scores of people who have probably contributed to today's worst problems. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, If you look deeply into the palm of your hand, 
you will see your parents and all generations of your ancestors. All of them are alive at this moment. Each is present in your body. You are the continuation of each of these people. We are carrying all those stories within us, even if we don't know the words. And during these talks, we get to share new stories with one another. In the end, and I will only speak for myself, but I suspect it's true for many of us, what inspires and motivates me are the stories. I have a visceral reaction to the image of a small boy sick with rabies from a bite from a feral dog. I don't react quite the same way to the statistics about how many people have died. Maybe, for me, the numbers are just too hard to comprehend. Barry Lopez wrote, The stories people tell have a way of taking care of them. If stories come to you, care for them and learn to give them away where they are needed. Sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive. That is why we put these stories in each other's memory. This is how people care for themselves. The story of the quagga came to me this summer, and I hope I have cared for this story well by sharing it with you. A couple of years ago, I splurged on a goofy book called Chinglish. It's a collection of funny translations, mostly signs, in China, where there was an attempt to include an English translation. So, for example, a sign on an off-limits grassy area says, I like your smile, but unlike you put your shoes on my face. But another sign in a nature preserve takes on a beautiful, almost haunting tone. It says, Your careful step keeps tiny grass invariably green. Our careful steps can help the bees, can help us look around for today's version of the quagga, can help us wake up and notice our opportunities for service in this amazing world around us which will never be the same as it is this moment, right here, right now. Look around you. We are constantly reminded of the uncertainty of life. If you knew you would be the last person to speak to a friend you saw today, would it make your conversation any different? Make your hug any warmer? make you listen to their story in a different way? May our eyes be open. May our hearts be open. May we pay attention to all sentient beings we are lucky enough to encounter and let those stories mingle with our own. Amen. Now ends the service. Now let the service begin.
for tuning in to the Preacher Girl Podcast. I'm Diane Wright, and you can find more of these podcasts on iTunes or through podbean.com. Special thanks to sound engineer Stephen Grant Smith, whose music appears on this podcast. You can find more of his music on iTunes or through amazon.com. This is Diane Wright. As always, feed your spirit, live in love.